Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Psalm 44. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You you made us retreat before the enemy. And our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. And have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance. Gained nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors. The scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long. And my face is covered with shame. At the taunts of those who reproach and revile me. Because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would, would, not have, would, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Amen. Thanks, Murphy. Great. Oh, well, nice to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Steve, so uh, thanks for coming, if you are new. Um, so we're thinking about psalms of lament. A third of the psalms are these psalms which cr- of cries of anguish, of, of grieving, of moaning, of pr- protestation to a God, uh, anger at God. Um, these psalms are raw, they are sort of uneven, they seem disrespectful at times. And if you're anything like me, when you read them, you're thinking, I'm not sure how to pray this psalm in my Bible. I'm not sure if I can speak to God like that. Um, In one sense, you could say psalms of lament are the result of unanswered prayer. God, you've not answered my prayer, and now I'm lamenting about that. And now I have a new prayer of lament. As I said, they're raw and uneven. They're often seen as controversial. Eugene Peterson, who translated uh, the Bible into sort of common language, uh, he, he has a few of them. There's lots of them. He says, please, God, treat me nice for a change. I'm so starved for affection. Can't you see I'm black and blue? 
beat up badly in bones and soul. God, how long will, will it? How long will you take? Uh, how long will it take for you to let up? God, you're avoiding me. Where are you when I need you? Long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough, I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with stomach full of pain. Raw emotion. Are we allowed to pray like this to God? Well, the Psalms of Lament tell us we're not just allowed, we must learn to. And if you don't learn to, you won't survive the life of faith. They're given to us so that we will pray like this. And why are we given these psalms? Well, because a lot of our lives, parts, or sometimes in our lives, or a lot of our lives, we end up in the desert. It's the language of the scriptures to be in the desert. Where what you hope for, the promises of scripture, what you think God has for you, do not in any way meet your reality. And so you have this tension between hope and reality, God, you, never, you promised never to forsake me, but I feel lonely. Hope and reality are not the same. God, you promised to love me, but I feel unlovely. God, you promised me a hope and a future. I can't see the future right now. You promised me peace, but I'm anxious. You promised me rest, but I'm exhausted. You promised me joy, but I'm depressed. Hope, what God says in the scriptures, his promises, and your reality don't meet. And then there's a desert in between, or the tension, it creates that tension. What are the options for us when we face these desert tension moments in our lives? Well, the first option, and many Christians have taken this option, is denial. A sense of living in unreality, not facing the actual disappointment of our lives. Because denial removes the tension, but you live in unreality. So many people suppress their feelings, pretending everything is okay and telling the world on social media that they're great, and the places they visit are great, and their friends are great, and their family is great, and the food they eat is great, and everything is great, but it's not great. And they live this double life, but they are trying to get over that feeling of grief or pain or hurt by living in, by denying it. Some Christians have gone so far as saying, you know, God's gonna heal me, and then they've died of cancer. And I have friends and family that that's been true of. They denied the reality of the suffering and they couldn't cope with that tension. But as so often happens, after you've got over the shock of the suffering and you realize that denial just leaves you numb and isolated and out of touch with reality, what often happens, particularly in the, mo the modern generation, is we kick into determination. If you can click the next slide, please. And determination is where we say things like, I faced enormous obstacles before and overcome them. I'm going to do the same with this. And you leave no stone unturned. Money means nothing to you. And you're convinced that by sheer force of will and by mobilizing prayer, you're going to fix this. But what happens, you just add another layer of suffering to your existing suffering as exhaustion kicks in. And so then it's a short trip from determination to Despair, if my clicker will come back at some point. Better not to hope at all. That closes the gap. I never have tension in my life then. I just don't hope for a future anymore. No matter what you do, no matter what's going on, uh, it just hurts too much, so I'm giving up hoping. But who can live without hope? 
And so you can probably see it's not good for us, and God doesn't want us to live in denial. He doesn't want to live with this grit of determination, and he doesn't want, to live us, he doesn't want us to live in despair. He wants us to process the desert through lament. Learning to lament means we come out of the desert in a richer, with a richer, deeper, more profound hope and joy. And the Psalms of lament, therefore, are water in the desert. To find water, to find God, and to make sure that we still stay thriving, even though we have to live with these tensions. The tensions don't always disappear. Now, as I said, the theme of the desert is everywhere in the Bible. Moses lived in the desert as an outcast in Midian for 40 years. The Israelites lived in the desert for 40 years. David runs from Saul into a desert. Do you remember Jesus reenacts the desert journey at the beginning of his ministry by fasting for 40 days while facing Satan's temptations? And if you think about Satan's temptation, each temptation is a quick fix to, 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 to you know, get rid of the gap of hope and reality, to solve it quickly. And it's very tempting to survive the desert by taking the bread that Satan will give you, the bread of bitterness, self-pity, Comparing with others with a jealousy or a mocking or a frustration. You become numb and detached. Your life is a full of complaining. So we need to find a way forward. And the Psalms of Lament are the way forward. So why does God allow us to live in the desert between hope and reality? Why doesn't he just close the gap for us? Because the deserts are the cure for our wandering hearts that are restlessly searching for a new Eden where death and disease and sin was not present then. And one day we'll have that. And in the moment, in, in the meantime, we live in the desert. So desert causes us to come to the end of ourselves and cry out for help. Deserts cause us to realize we cannot do it on our own. Deserts break, the will, break our will by the reality of our circumstances. I can't just have it my way. Deserts cause our idols to die for lack of food. Deserts burn away pretense and make you authentic and real. Deserts force you to find joy in God because you, you can't find it anywhere else. Deserts mean you cry out so long and so hard to God that a channel opens up in the desert and you find him and you find living water. But you had to carve that channel out in prayer. So let's turn to Psalm 44. How do we actually go about praying in the desert? And, he, and Psalm 44 tells us three things. To remember the glorious past, verses 1 to 8. To lament the disastrous present, verses 9 to 16. And to protest to God, oh God, why? Oh Lord, why? So remember, lament, and protest. Let's look briefly at them. Firstly, remembering the glorious past. In this section, you just have it open there or have it out there. Um, the, the, the writer talks about what he, you know, what he learned from his forefathers and how God worked in the forefathers to bring them into the promised land and to b- defeat their enemies. And uh, the victory was one look at verse 3, not by the sword, but by the God's power. So they won battles and they, 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 they had amazing breakthroughs in their life because they relied on divine intervention. The victory was God's work. And then in verse 4, he, he moves to the present tense and says, that's still what we think. We, you know, we still are dependent on you, God. But he says the battles are now failures. And we still trust you, but, but our results in battle are disastrous. But he remembers a glorious past when God came through. But it was God, not them. 
And then, in, and then in verses 9 to 16, he, he laments the disastrous presence. Do you see, just read verse 8 with me. In God, we make our boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. He's saying, this is how we'd lived, fully dependent on God. And then verse 9, but now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. Look at the language he uses. Verse 10, you've made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries are plundered. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nation. You've sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing for their sale. Can you hear how the distress deepens? Do you see the words rout, spoil, slaughter, scattering, slavery, all directed at God? But worse than any of that is inner defeat. They're just the circumstances. It's just the shame and humiliation that the psalmist feels a loss of confidence, demoralized. Verses 13 to 16, they were a reproach to their neighbors, a scorn and derision to those around them, a byword. People shake their heads. They, he lives in disgrace, verse 15, all day long. My face is covered in shame. Uh, you know, re- reproach and revile and all the rest. So from remembering the glorious past, he laments deeply with passion and, and, and a great vocabulary at the pain and the frustration of the present. And then he moves to protest. Oh Lord, why? Verses 17 to 23. And what becomes apparent is that his suffering is not because of sin. The God's people were going to be sent into exile because of sin in Babylon. This, this, this moment of defeat that he, we, we're reading about is pre-exile. It's, it's pre-Babylon. The present defeat was not because of sin. Verse 17. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Verse 18, our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. This lament has no confession of guilt. He knows he hasn't sinned, and yet they're being defeated. The psalmist says, actually, we're innocent, God. And that's the problem. If I had sinned, verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? You know, if we had sinned, fair enough. But they haven't sinned. And verse 18, look at the phrase, our hearts had not turned back, our feet had not strayed. Sorry, not verse 18. It's um, my verse there. You've crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us in deep darkness. See, this is like the man born blind in John chapter 9. Do you know that story when people are going, well, why is he blind? And Jesus, and is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And, and Jesus says, no, neither, but that God might receive glory. And so in, in, in this psalm, the psalmist is wrestling with these baffling fluctuations that are part of the Christian life. You have periods of blessing, verses 1 to 8, and periods of barrenness. Verses 9 to 16. You have periods of advance, verses 1 to 8. And you have periods of retreat, verses 9 to 16. And the people are just as loyal, just as holy, just as faithful, just as dependent in verses 1 to 8 as they are in 9 to 16. You know, there's an amazing passage in the New Testament that has the same. It's the great, it's the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. And, it, and, it, and the first sort of bit of the, the chapter ends like this. By talking about victorious faith, verse 33. 
conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. Weakness was turned to strength, hallelujah. And, who, and, and we were made powerful in battle, like verses 1 to 8. And we routed our armies. And look, women, probably thinking about the women of Elijah and Elisha, you know, received back their dead, raised to life again. Victoria's faith, verses 1 to 8 of our psalm. And then without any notice or any preparation, verse 35 goes, there were others who were tortured. Huh. We're not going hallelujah for that faith. Refusing to be released. Verse 36, some faced jeers and flogging. Some were chained and imprisoned. They were put to death by stoning. They were sworn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. How does Hebrews 11 end? These were all commended for their faith. The ones that had victorious faith and the ones that had suffering faith. Yet none of them received what was promised because that was coming in Jesus. Do you see? Verses 1 to 8 of the psalm is those that suffered. Verses 9 to 16 of the psalm, uh, were victorious. Verses 9 to 16, those that suffered. Both groups were loyal to God. Both groups had faith. Both groups were holy. And so the psalmist is saying, why? Why does this happen, God? And he gets in God's face. Just look at verse 23. Look down there. Do you ever speak to God like this? Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do you reject us forever? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? He accuses God of being asleep. Hiding his face, rejecting them. And we have to admit that we've all experienced that. And it's not a lack of faith, but a sign of faith when you can say that to God. Mark chapter 4. The disciples are on a lake, Galilee. Furious storm comes up. What's, what's Jesus doing? Remember? He's asleep. And the disciples, what do they do? They protest they run over. Lord, don't you care? No, what do they say? Uh, the disciples woke and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care, Lord? Why are you sleeping while we're about to die? We're drowning. That's a psalm of lament. Lord, don't you see this agony, this pain, this hurt, this tension, this loss, this frustration? Why are you not acting? Are you asleep, God? Can you not hear me? Eugene Peterson, I've looked at the back of your head for long enough. That's how storms and deserts feel. God's sleeping and we're about to die. But Jesus and God, they do care. And that's what the Psalms are meant to do. And they say, no, I do care. Come and find the living water by finding me. You're going to need to wrestle. You're going to need to question. Your prayer life's going to have to have a new vocabulary like this Psalm. You're going to have to doubt, protest. And you'll discover me in a whole way that's deeper. So is there an answer to why some people get victory through faith and some people get suffering through faith? Is there a reason why those who are loyal and dependent on God sometimes get advanced and sometimes get retreat, sometimes get barrenness, sometimes get uh, fruitfulness? Yeah, verse 22. Look down at verse 22. Yet for your sake... We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you see it? Yet for your sake. 
The suffering is for God's sake. Like the man born blind, this is going to bring glory to God. Derek Kidner has this wonderful insight on this verse. Verse 22 implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than punishment, the price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. If that is so, then barrenness and fruitfulness, retreat in advance, suffering as victory, are all signs of fellowship with God, not alienation. Does anyone know, you can shout out, where verse 22 appears in the New Testament? Romans 8. Paul is unpacking the victorious Christian life. And he comes to this verse. Do you remember it? He says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, Psalm 44 verse 22 explains it all, Paul says. For your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as Israel knew the experience of feeling that God was hiding his face, so do we as believers, hardships, persecutions, danger, and all the rest. We too feel like sheep to be slaughtered. We're in the desert, but God is not asleep. The divine aloofness and inattention are just appearances. The reality behind them is the last word of the psalm. We spent a whole week last week thinking about it. Rise up and help us rescue us because of your unfailing love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. How can I be certain that God is not sleeping and his love is unfailing when I'm in a desert? Well, like all of the Old Testament, Psalm 44 points forward to one who would have a greater thirst, experience a more dry desert, and he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he did face death at the hands of man and at the justice of God. Why? So every single one of us could know Romans 8 is true, that the desert's not the end of the story. There's always hope. He forgave our sin. He rose from the dead. That's why Paul says we're more than conquerors because not even death can separate us. And he says, no matter what the future holds, Paul says, you know, nothing life, present or future is ever going to change that I'm uh, securing the love of Christ. So let me bring this together. Learning to lament. If you want to go through the trials of life, or just life in a fallen world, you're going to have to get in God's face when suffering disappointment, pain, tension comes into your lives. The alternatives are not good enough. Denial, determination, despair, they don't work. They make things worse. So God has given us these prayers to help us process. And I want to say four things to finish. The first one to say is that these Psalms are full of passion, emotion, but they're just as much full of argument. You know, when you read the prayers of the Scriptures, they always argue with God. Saying, God, you said this, now you do it. And God wants us to take his word so seriously that we pray it back to him like that. Not just with emotion, but with argument. 
You know, all children, I was telling Annabelle today when she was pushing me for more TV time. <laughs> all children know how to lament. What do they do? You said this, Dad. You said I had 10 minutes more of screen time. You said I could stay up late to watch Match of the Day, you know? And they come to me with passion. And if they sense I'm not going to give in, they get emotional. But they're using arguments. You said God, God, and they do not give up. Lament. Children know how to lament. Remember Jesus? You must become like a child. We need to relearn the language of lament. Secondly, I want to give a caution. The difference between a complaint and a lament. Do you remember Israel complained a lot and they were not commended for that? Uh, a lament is uh, different from a complaint in a number of ways. The first thing is a lament is directed towards God. So a lament is faith. When Israel complains, they complain against Moses. So a complaint talks about God, a lament talks to God. See the difference? One person is just an act of rebellion complaining about God. The other one is an act of faith, angry with God, but speaking to him. So a lament is directed towards God. A lament submits. After all the passion, all the emotion, all the reason, all the argument, the lament joins Jesus in Gethsemane and says, Lord, if there's any way, please, but not my will, but yours be done. And finally, Laments circle back to faith. That's why the psalm ends with the redeeming love of God. The journey of lament has left this person in quiet faith, expressing their faith in God's love. Which leads me to a third point, something I've been slow to do in my own life. If we want to not just pray laments, but be a community that can handle laments, We've got to get good at not shutting people down when they might say something theologically incorrect with lots of passion in their pain. And stop giving quick answers. What's so striking about the biblical laments is that God almost never critiques them. He delights in hearing our messy hearts. So we as a community need to get better at listening to messy hearts, not jumping to quick solutions and answers not correcting everything that's theologically maybe dubious in, in the emotion. There might be time for that. But initially, there just needs to be raw, authentic, real, vulnerable, broken, hurting. And let the person emerge before you offer much. Discover themselves and find a safe place to doubt and protest. Instead of chiding a person that something was imbalanced, let them pour out their hearts. Listen to their hearts. Be more concerned about the state of their heart than the state of their theology. Listening silently, you're asking questions. doesn't mean you agree with what they're saying. It just means you lo- the other person knows you love them no matter what they say, which just seems to be what God is doing in these laments. But let me finish my fourth point. Learning to lament is because you understand you're part of a bigger story of this Romans 8 that even though God seems hidden and you're not sure what the future holds, there is a story and there is a future and there is God's unfailing love. You see, if you don't get in God's face, if you don't get passionate, you just move to denial and, and numbing yourself and cynicism slips in. But then you have no story. You're not going anywhere. You have no hope. Here's two charts. 
here's on the left is someone with no story. They're bitter, they're angry, they're aimless, they're cynical, they're controlling, they're hopeless, they're thankless, they're blaming. On the right is a child of someone with a story. They're waiting, they're watching, they're wondering, they're praying, they're submitting, they're hoping, they're thankful, they're repenting. To lament is to keep yourself in the Father's story. And I want to say there's three things. I keep finishing here, but there are three things that are important. And I'm going to get you to come forward and light a candle to say, yeah, I want to do, I want to kind of enter this story of lament. Don't demand that the story goes your own way. At some point, you have to surrender. You have to give up and say, God, you're in charge. Look to the storyteller and say, well, Lord, if this is the desert in my life, that you, if this is the tension between hope and reality that you're not closing, why? What are you doing? Develop an eye for what God is doing. And thirdly, just stay in the story. Stay in the story by lamenting and praying. Do you remember what Jesus said? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In the desert, many things die. Hopes, dreams, expectations, ambitions, and a whole lot more. But when they die, new life can come. And then you end up with wonder. As you pray and lament, you find new things that are more beautiful than you could have had originally. You see God at work. You see pockets of beauty and power and love and hope that you never dreamed of. You have a miscarriage. Good friends leave town. You're fired from your job. You have a serious injury. Your parents fail you and hurt you, or your friends do too. You live with unwanted sexual feelings. Your life just seems much more mundane and boring and uneventful than when you, what you dreamed of when you were younger. Your child has a disability. Your child dies. You cannot rent a house in Dublin because it's so expensive and it puts lots of pressure on your life. Your visa doesn't get accepted. What you put your hand to for months and months and years and years fails. And it feels like a waste and there's no future. Whatever it is, stay in the story. Don't demand it goes your way. Look to what the storyteller is doing. And then it'll become like a mosaic. You know, a mosaic is lots of broken pieces of pottery. None of these pieces are very beautiful. They're broken. And they get put together and the mosaic becomes beautiful, and we will start to see connections that our Heavenly Father, the great storyteller, is doing in our lives. And the good news of Romans 8, of Psalm 44, verse 22, is that all the tragedies become comedies, and one day everything sad will come untrue. That's the end of our story. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna sing a song called Yes, I Will, which is a song about Responding and say, God, I'm going to keep worshiping. I'm going to keep giving you my life. I'm going to keep following you. Stay in the story. And we're going to come forward and light a candle if you want. But don't come quickly. As in, I don't want you just to do it for the sake of it. I want you to say, Lord, I'm lighting this candle because I'm not demanding the story goes my way. I'm looking to you, the storyteller. And I'm staying in the story.